Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Traveling On Radio Show, your premier source for travel news and information, featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, the Traveling On Radio Show. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on the Traveling On Radio Show, soon to be World Footprints Radio. And as you know, we love to celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage with you each week. We're your host, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we are broadcasting from our studio right outside our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. On today's show, it's all aboard the Alberta train, which we traveled from Vancouver to Whistler during the Olympics and made some new friends we'd like to introduce you to from Alberta. First, from Scotland to Canada to Tonga's Vavau, travel promoter and entrepreneur Sandy Best knows the best when he sees it. As a passionate promoter for Alberta's Lake Louise, Sandy loves skiing, Lake Louise, Alberta, and life in general, and will share his passion for tourism with this modern-day Renaissance man. Then the CEO of the greatest outdoor show on earth, the Calgary Stampede's Vern Kimball, stops by to get us in the saddle for a wild, wild west adventure. Finally, known to many Canadians for its just food on the Canadian cable channel Viva and cook like a chef on the Canadian version of the Food Network, Chef Ned Bell is redefining food, philanthropy, and sustainability in and out of the kitchen and will introduce you to Ned. Although our domain will be changing soon, you can still email your comments and questions to us at comments at travelnradio.com. And as you guys have heard over the last few weeks, we are in the process of changing our name to World Footprints. And so the next time, next couple of times uh, you hear from us, we'll be broadcasting as World Footprints Radio. We felt that World Footprints is a name that better reflects our values of responsible travel, culture, heritage, global citizenship, travel philanthropy, volunteerism, and uh, and the like. And we're very excited about this change, and we're looking forward to you joining us on our journey to leave positive footprints and build positive legacies one step at a time. And it's really a nice name for us because we're more than just a travel show. It's, it's really not even about travel. It's about life and celebrating just the joy that comes from seeing this world. Mm-hmm. And, and connecting people and encouraging cultural immersion experiences and, and just bringing the joys of this world to our listening audience. Indeed. And one of those instances where we were able to connect people was with the show that the North American travel journalists recognized as best travel broadcast for 2009, the show we did on the road to freedom where we brought together journalist Charlie Cobb, who wrote the book On the Road to Freedom, and two fellow travelers, Christine Bischoff and Scott Hartway, who toured the American South and visited places and landmarks and rediscovered the history of the Civil Rights Trail, and they talked about how that transformed their lives. And so we're so honored to have been recognized by NATCHA for the show that we did, and we hope it's the first of many, many awards to come, and uh, hopefully it validates uh, the commitment we've made to you to bring you meaningful, transformative travel journalism. And, you know, the one thing that I do appreciate about NACHA, the North American Travel Journalists Association, and, and this award is that it was given to us in Vancouver, and so I felt as though uh, we actually earned our own little gold medal mm-hmm. <laughs> from Vancouver. Recently naturalized as a Canadian, Sandy Best first made his way from Scotland to Alberta in 1989 in search of the best skiing in the world he could find. Not only to his delight did he find that, but he found a new home and in the process became one of Alberta's biggest boosters. Here to share his love of Banff, Lake Louise, Alberta, and even a magical place in the South Pacific where he lives part-time. Uh, half of the year, Sandy loves life, meeting people from all over the world and sharing his passion for life and travel like very few we've met on our journeys. We're on board the Whistler Express today, headed north from Vancouver to Whistler for the next to last day of the Winter Olympic Games, the 2010 Games that have uh, taken place here in Vancouver and Whistler, and we're speaking with Sandy Best, the Director of Public Relations for Lake Louise. Sandy, welcome. Well, good morning, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Now tell us, what makes Lake Louise such a special place and kind of give folks who may not be familiar with it a little context as to where it is? Well, basically Lake Louise is unique because it's a ski resort inside Banff National Park, which was the second national park in North America, the first one being in the United States of America. And so that means it's a ski hill that hasn't been overdeveloped. It's as God gave it to you, which to me as a hardcore skier is, is beautiful. With the, you could ski around a bend and there isn't condos. It's just 100% natural. It's pretty big. It's 11 square miles of terrain, 4,300 acres of trails. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site for natural beauty. I mean, up at Lake Louise, we say we let the scenery and the skiing take your breath away, not the altitude. No disrespect to Colorado and Utah. <laughs> Now, one of the things about uh, Lake Louise is that it is known for skiing. It's known for um, cold activities, but it truly is a year-round uh, destination that welcomes visitors at all times of the uh, year, from spring to summer activities and so forth. Talk to us about the diversity of recreational opportunities beyond just skiing, even though I know you love to ski. Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, what's really interesting is that we'll do about a million skiers in the winter, we do around 4 million visitors in the summer. I mean, they, people say you come for winter and you stay for summer. It is stunning. Uh, I mean, there's everything from fishing, fly fishing, rafting, kayaking, hiking, mountain biking, horseback riding. We have some amazing backcountry lodges that you hike into and have five-star luxury. There is everything that anybody can want. But the most beautiful thing about the place is it's 100% natural mm -hmm. and clean air and great views. I mean, there's no factories anywhere. There's no noise pollution. There's no sound pollution. There's no... It's just clean, wonderful... It's 100% natural. I mean, it's 100% natural. Wildlife, you know, you come and see grizzly bears, brown bears, black bears, cougars, lynx, foxes. It's not a zoo. It's a national park. And we get a lot of trouble with people that think it's in a protected playground. It's not. You go too far off the road, you start messing around, and you're on the food chain. <laughs> That could be pretty exciting for the uh, uninitiated tourists who may uh, think that, oh, these are nice uh, animals to uh, play with, and so they've got to be careful about that. One of the things about Lake Louise is the beauty of the lake itself. This lake, as we understand, takes its color from the natural rock flower that gives it this special turquoise look, and when you see it, it's almost like looking at a mirror. You see just the beautiful reflection of the mountains, the scenery. The, uh, the trees surrounding the lake. This is truly one of the most extraordinary natural settings anywhere. Talk to us about it. Well, it's basically fed from the glaciers that come down. They do melt a little bit. And it's the most amazing turquoise color. You know, it looks like living, looking at a living jewel. And we have Lake Louise, we, and we also have Lake Minnewanka, we have Moraine Lake. I mean, if you want to see lakes in natural wonder, we have the ink pots, which are four lakes side by side. They're all different colors. But Lake Louise is breathtaking. And if you imagine the history when the railway came through and they discovered Lake Louise, that's how tourism began. The chairman of CP Rail said, this is the most beautiful place in the world. And I can't take the scenery to the people, so I will bring the people to the scenery. And that's how CP shipping started, CP rail started. That was the history. And they brought in European mountain guides to walk people around the mountains so they could explore the natural beauty. And what's exciting about it is nearly 200 years later, those trails are still the same. Man hasn't altered them except with his footprints. And that makes it truly, truly special. When you were recounting the history of the Canadian National Railway, the history behind the hotel and so forth, uh, which today is truly extraordinary, the, the Fairmont Chateau Lake Louise Hotel, again with the mountain guides, you can enjoy skiing, horseback riding. I know that's, that's the signature property. Talk to us about uh, that place and some of the other range of accommodations available in Lake Louise. Well, you've got everything. You've got, of course, the iconic Chateau Lake Louise, which I call a cruise liner that found the perfect place and decided to stay. You know, why would we go anywhere else? Down in the village, we've got the Post Hotel. Hathaway Hideaways, an American publication, uh, rates it as one of the most iconic ski lodges in the world. 
Uh, we have the Lake Louise Inn for the condos. You know, you, some people just want to have a condominium. We have West Louise Lodge where you can you can ski for stay for seventy nine bucks Canadian a night. Two people. We have everything from affordable B and Bs right through to five star luxury. But five star luxury, remember, in Lake Louise, the winter's low season, not high season. So that hotel might cost you five hundred bucks a night in the summer. You can pick it up for two hundred bucks a night in the winter. Ski the best in the West, the less than the rest. Ski Lake Louise. <laughs> now, Sandy, in talking to people on board uh, the train today, they just are amazed by your energy, and they want to know, what drug are you on? I live on the Lord's cocaine, powder snow. <laughs> no, I, I live on, I, look, I live in Alberta. It's a beautiful place. It's not crowded. It's not dangerous. It's friendly. What's to be stressed about? You know, Sandy, when we were there, I, I remarked to Ian that I thought Lake Louise resembles heaven to me. I mean, it was very, very beautiful, but I, I, I thought, you know, I hope God in heaven is a little bit warmer. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, every place has a history, and, and following the Olympics, you know, the First Nations were, were made very much a part of, of uh, the Olympic celebrations. Can you talk a little bit about the Aboriginal history in Lake Louise and how they've been incorporated uh, and embraced with the, with the natural uh, surroundings? And you mentioned Lake Louise is also a UNESCO heritage uh, site, I believe. Was that correct? Well, first thing about the First Nations were the first people there. And there's little, there are different tribes, but they're all mainly part of the Sioux tribe, the Stony Sioux. And what's really interesting is the Sioux tribe from America used to come up and help the buffalo in the summer at Banff National Park. And the Nakoda Lodge is the historical kingdom lodge, head summer lodge of the Sioux Nation. And the Sioux Nation is a first nation. It's not the United States of America and it's not Canada. The Sioux Nation spread from the mountains to the shores. So we're just guests in their land. Uh, we still have active trading posts so that the natives can still do what they always do, which is hunt, fish, make beautiful beadwork and stuff. So those skills and have, have been maintained and nurtured because tourists want to buy them. They're the real McCoy. They're not made in Korea or Japan. They're actually made on the reserve. And they have their own way of doing things. They have their own police force. Which the park is surrounded by the Indian lands. You know, you drive when you drive from Calgary, you come right across the, through the foothills. That's the Stony Sioux and Nakoda. It's their country. We pass through it, and everything works together. In Banff, we have Indian Day, where you'll, all the tribe will come in, and on the we, my, my wife and I are lucky enough to own a hotel, and on the Indian days, we've had chiefs sitting there telling stories and people just stopping and listening. You know, we're all living on the same planet, and we all have to live in it together, which makes which is Canada's very very unique. And the First Nations are a part of our heritage. I mean, you saw how they were totally included in the Olympics. That's a big difference between Canada and the United States, I'm afraid. I know you live six months of the year in another part of the world, but and you're, you're a recent Canadian citizen. Congratulations on that. What brought you to this region, to Lake Louise and Banff, that area? What, what is it about that appeals to you? Well, it's interesting enough, I've been a skier all my life and came out to Calgary in the 88 Olympics and then came back in 89 on a fam trip to look at Lake Louise and some stuff and I never left. I discovered God's perfect playground. God's a skier and he skis here. That's, that's been my belief. And uh, in the old days, I was a hardcore skier. I'm a little older now. And what we would do is when the season finished in Canada, we would head down to New Zealand and ski there. And once I got the opportunity to stop off in Fiji in the South Pacific, and then I went over to Vavahu, it's a little island between uh, South of American Samoa, east of uh, Fiji and west of Tahiti, and found another perfect place. And there we live in the kingdom of Tonga, or ancient Polynesia. And what's unique about Vavahu is it's the one, one of the few places in the world that wasn't colonized by anybody. Not the English, not the Spanish, not the Americans, not the French. So their culture is amazing. And it's, I mean, we have a king, a queen, princes, nobles, 
uh, tribal chiefs. It's a matriarchal society, and we are guests in their country. They welcome you. But my wife and I have learned to speak Tongan. We dress in indigenous dress. So when we go to their social functions, we don't go as a Palangi, which means a foreigner. In fact, they call me Tongan Hina Hina, which means a white Tongan. And it's different. I mean, it's, it's back to nature. I guess I've found two of the most beautiful places in the world that haven't been spoiled. You know, I live, in, I live in Banff National Park where there's zero development, where the animals are there the people, the indigenous people are still there, it's still their land, and now I live in the South Pacific on an island that's never been colonized by anybody. So you could say it's not been screwed up, I like it just the way it is. Well, you know, a lot of the values that I think we've lost in what I would call the first world, these guys still have, you know, family is everything, everything. And then there is no homeless, there is no hungry, you know, if you're hungry, somebody will give you food. If you have no roof, somebody will put a roof over your head, they will take you in, you'll see You'll see, it's a very tribal culture. And I actually think that part of the Western world is that we've lost that. We've lost that value of humanity. You know, you tend to be judged with, do you have a car? Do you have a Rolex watch? Yeah, we've got to get back to the basics. Part of the opportunity that uh, you've seen there is to really counsel the, the Tongans on what real sustainable tourism is and real sustainable development is and you've had some interesting conversations with them about how the tourism industry should develop there as we've seen in a lot of places large-scale developers come in and put in major operations hotels and the like condos and so forth and that requires a certain level of infrastructure and you've had some interesting conversations with them in terms of talking to them about how to preserve their way of life and still be connected with the 21st century in terms of having a place that remains attractive and remains sustainable. Talk to us about that. Well, in, in reality, even the United Nations said two years ago that for most of the world, the only industry that we have as the resources dry up will be natural tourism. And I learned that from living in Banff National Park. Here was a very successful, sustainable tourism culture based upon not changing it by controlling the amount of people that go to see it and you give, give classic examples you'll see a great ski resort and then in reality that ski resort can handle 8,000 people but a developer comes in and puts 20,000 pillars at the bottom of it so they kill the very thing that made it special so with that learning, learning experience I have from, from being in Alberta uh, I was I was opportunity enough to meet the Prime Minister, the Minister of Tourism of the country, and it's not a big country, but you have to respect the office. And I was explaining to them that you know sustainable tourism is very important, but it also has to involve the community. The last thing you want is what you see in the Mexico and the Caribbean, where there's these purpose-built resorts where people fly down from New York, and they say I went to Mexico, but they never left the compound. They didn't see Mexico; they just saw America with an accent no disrespect but that's just my opinion so what makes Tonga unique is there is no American chains there there's no Burger Kings there's no and I don't mean to pick on America there is no European hotels there there's nothing of that so we were talking with them about because they've been approached well can we build a hotel on this island and they asked me my opinion I said well if you build this here that's 200 pillows those people are going to come here to do something. So you're going to need 200 seats on boats. To get 200 people on those boats, you're going to need big planes. When you land a big plane, you're going to need 450 passenger buses. You don't have a road system, a sewer system, to do that. And sometimes I think that the first world developers tend to think of first world revenues and not third world impacts. And yet if we can teach the third world the value of tourism and show them, and this comes back to the national park idea, I actually proposed to them they should become a marine national park. Well, of course, a lot of the white people were up in arms about it because it's, you know, but in the long run, you end up killing the goose that laid the golden egg. So by, take, by learning from our experiences in the first world and taking the good things, because sustainable tourism is a good thing. You don't have to cut down a tree, you know, it provides employment, it provides revenue, and we all need it, whether it's the first world or the third world, I'm sorry, but the whole world revolves around commerce, 
and by protecting what people have come to value you know the days are gone where I'm going to fly to Mexico drink beer all day on a beach go partying all night people now are understanding that it's a great world out there and they want to meet people from other cultures and so why don't we keep it as it was you know go and stay we have a little guest house a little Tongan guest house people say well why don't you build a big five star hotel I would spoil it and if you do it properly you know, if I'm going to build a hotel here and I say, okay, I need, I need five staff for this hotel. So I go to the local village and I build five bedrooms for my staff. Now, if the village says, hey, we don't need five bedrooms, but we could do with a daycare, then make the hotel that's costing $5 million, spend an extra 250 and build a daycare. So you see a relationship between the local indigenous population, see a benefit from this. But you don't overtax it. You don't build... You know, if you've got a population in a village of 80 people, you don't bring in 3,000 tourists. That's where we need it. And I've, I've actually been invited with different organizations to say, you know, this is, I have a very different way of looking at things, but I, you know, opinions are like, everybody's got one. I did well to keep that off the air, right? <laughs> okay. Um, one of the things that, that I really enjoyed hearing from you about Vavahu, you know, your passion is skiing, mine's scuba diving. And I know that Vavahu is the only place in the world where you can actually dive with humpback whales. Well, you, can't, you don't dive with them, you swim with them. Uh, because the bubbles from a, a bubble from the aqualung will actually scare them away. If you wanted to dive with them, you'd need to use a rebreather. But you can swim with them. You can get, you know, with the, with the operators, you can get within 10 feet of them. What efforts are made to conserve uh, the whales? Well, I take both because I've dove with sharks, and I do believe that the industry tried to habitualize sharks to human beings. So we, we put in behavior models that would cause the shark's behavior to change, so they equate human beings to food, you know, putting chumsicles on the bottom and stuff like that. With the whales, it's completely different. They're, a, they're mentally a different creature. They actually do. I mean, they talk. It's fascinating. The whales that come up, come up from the Antarctic, they only come to give birth. So they're there for a long, long time. They're there for four to six months. So when they give birth, the young are born. And uh, then the whales nurture them. They feed them and communicate with them and teach them. When he, and that's why we don't like divers near them. You can go in with a snorkel and a mask. So to the parent, you're just another whale. And I've seen it where a, a human being will raise an arm and a baby whale's fin will raise the arm and then they're gone they, it's not like you're seeing them every single day you know they come up for six months then they go back to antarctica and then maybe it's a neck you know you just see the young there are two schools of thought we should leave them alone i have never met anybody that hasn't swum with a whale at that equal level there's no technology. You've got a pair of flippers, a snorkel, and a mask. You're just in there just like them. And they come back blown away. Now, if you can experience nature that way and learn the value of that creature so we can stop hunting it, then I think it's a good thing. And because we haven't had massive development, the water doesn't become overcrowded. You know, that's the other thing. In other words, if you, you would... You know, you, we would drive the whales away if all of a sudden there was 5,000 people there. The fact that there's only, in any one day, 100 people out in the water. And because there aren't big hotels and big planes, that number will never increase. Yeah. So, Sandy, where can people learn more about Vavahu? And also, uh, if, if you have a website for your bed and breakfast, share. The island has a website called vavahu.to v-a-v-a-u dot t-o and then of course my little operation is vavahuvilla.com v-a-v-a-u v-i-l-l-a dot com and uh, if anybody has any questions they can always email me at that site we get different requests and stuff but you know in America there's a book called A Thousand Places to See Before You Die and in the South Pacific Vavahu is rated number one and it only it doesn't talk about the whales that's a treat because the last thing we want is the whole world crowding us out. You know, we want to... I do believe passionately that there are many, many, many beautiful places in the world. And we as a first world have a responsibility to maintain the third world as it is. So we can go see it and enjoy it. If they want to move further up... But sometimes we're guilty of putting our values on them. 
we always assume that, well, they want a TV and a car. I don't have a TV. I live in the Discovery Channel. Why would I buy a TV? <laughs> well, Sandy, if uh, people want to learn more about Lake Louise and uh, Banff National Park, where can they go to uh, pick up more information? They can call me at my home number. No, <laughs> no, no, we have uh, a website, www.skilouise.com. And you'll learn all about Lake Louise, and we have links to Banff National Park. You can go into the Banff National Park site. You know, the, the, the parks have its own site. But if you want to come and ski the Rockies, ski the biggest, ski the best, ski where God skis, ski Louise www.skilouise.com and, and ask for me because I'll ski you around the mountain. Sandy Best, Public Relations Director for Lake Louise, we thank you for being with us. You should come out and put some footprints where I live because there's a lot of shows out there. Fantastic. When we come back, we'll learn more about the greatest outdoor show on earth, the Calgary Stampede, from its CEO, Vern Kimball. You're listening to the Traveling On Radio Show, soon to be World Footprints Radio, and we're back right after this. Hi, I'm Mary Dick Dela Cruz from Vancouver, British Columbia, and we're here at the Vancouver Olympics, and you're listening to the Travel On Radio Show. Go Canada, go! Traveling On is moving on to a new name. Soon, we'll begin broadcasting as World Footprints Radio, a name that better reflects our celebration of responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Our shows will continue fostering global citizenship and a greater social consciousness by promoting values like travel philanthropy, volunteerism, and sustainability. Join us on this journey to leave positive footprints and build lasting legacies one step at a time. Be sure to put Friday, April 9th through Sunday, April 11th on your calendars and join World Footprints Radio in New Orleans for the 27th Annual French Quarter Festival. This award-winning three-day event showcases the city's best live local music, cuisine, and culture, and admission is free. Enjoy nearly 170 musical performances throughout the French Quarter and more than 105 food and beverage booths from some of the city's culinary elite, making up the world's largest jazz brunch. For more information on the largest free music festival in the South, visit fqfi.org or foreverneworleans.com. making sure the air in your home is healthy for your family to breathe. Testing for radon is easy. Just call 866-730-GREEN. A message from the US EPA. Well, he moved early. That's going to draw the yellow flag. Offside, number 72, 5 yards. Check out this man leaving the game. He's headed straight up the middle and right into a sobriety checkpoint. Let's see how he handles it. No, officer. I haven't been drinking. I'm the designated driver. Upon further review, this fan made the right call by being a designated driver. Sign up to be the designated driver at the stadium and always buckle up. You could follow your favorite NFL team to the Super Bowl, provided as a public service by the station and team coalition. Traveling On is moving on to a new name. Soon, we'll begin broadcasting as World Footprints Radio, a name that better reflects our celebration of responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Our shows will continue fostering global citizenship and a greater social consciousness by promoting values like travel philanthropy, volunteerism, and sustainability. Join us on this journey to leave positive footprints and build lasting legacies one step at a time. This is the Traveling On Radio Show, bringing you a world of travel news and information. Once again, let's join your hosts, Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Hi, I'm Kerry in from Vancouver, British Columbia. We're here at the Olympic Games. It's fun. It's awesome. We're having a great time. Wish you were here. You're listening to the Travel On Radio Show. Every July, Calgary takes center stage with the greatest outdoor show on earth, the Calgary Stampede, featuring its famous chuck wagon races, the world's largest outdoor rodeo. It's been attracting millions since 1912. The CEO of the Calgary Stampede, Vern Kimball joins us on the Alberta train to talk about what makes the Stampede one of the greatest spectacles on earth. We are joined by Vern Kimball, the CEO of the Calgary Stampede, perhaps the best known rodeo in all of North America and the world. Vern, welcome. Thank you, Ian. 
tell us about the storied history of the Calgary Stampede. Perhaps no other rodeo is better known than this one. Tell us all about it. Well, we've been doing rodeo ever since uh, Guy Wiedick created the Stampede in 1912, and we're looking forward to our 100th anniversary in a couple of years. And we have uh, one of the highest-paying rodeos. We attract the very best athletes, and we have the very best stock at our rodeo. So we've been doing it for 100 years. We're uh, delighted to be a leader in rodeo in the industry. Now, Vern, does the rodeo offer, I mean, I love rodeos, and we actually went to our first one uh, a couple of months ago down in Amarillo, Texas, the World Ranch Rodeo Championship. So there are different events there like the wild cow milking contest and things of that sort, but the Stampede have, um, I guess, what everyone would consider to be standard rodeo events, or are there some special events that Stampede offers? Our rodeo has the traditional rodeo events. We uh, focus on the athletic performance and the pure sporting events that rodeo does. So we do the, uh, of course, bull riding, saddle bronc, bareback, and the traditional events. We don't do the uh, wild cow milking and wild horse races that uh, some rodeos do. We used to do them, but then decided to focus a bit more on the sport focus on the athletes, both the uh, human and animal athletes. Now, the one thing about the Calgary Stampede is that it has become a festival to showcase uh, Western Canada, to showcase Calgary, to showcase Alberta. And it not only features traditional rodeo, but it also touches and reaches into the agricultural community in Alberta. And it's also a way for city and country to connect. So you've got a unique event that really brings in a whole bunch of people from so many cross-sections of life. Talk to us about some of these special aspects of the Stampede. You bet. We have... um the tradition, I said, started with Guy Wiedek in 1912 was when we uh, essentially grafted on the rodeo and Wild West aspects of uh, our Western heritage and culture onto an agricultural fair that started in 1886. Our organization and the Stampede actually is a terrific uh, bridge between rural and urban. Uh, we have 2,200 volunteers that ensure that the Stampede uh, spirit is taken to every corner of the city, and our citizens come out and support that such that it really is a citywide festival for the 10 days and the two weeks or so leading up to it with all kinds of community gatherings. Um, it really is a gathering place for the community, and it's just like the second Christmas year. We have Christmas in July. And, of course, in addition to some of the agricultural events, you also have uh, a lot of cultural events, I understand, and certainly following the Olympics and the inclusion of First Nations in, in that celebration, um, I understand Stampede also offers a, kind of an immersion experience or cultural experience for visitors, too. Can you tell us about those? We have a um, an Indian village that uh, tourists really enjoy going to. It's authentic. We have uh, original families that in 1912... Um, became what we call teepee owners and the descendants of those teepee owners are still uh, the teepee owners today and they provide an opportunity for um, non, uh, non-aboriginals to actually see how they live and you're actually invited into their homes during the 10 days. Now, one of the things about uh, about the Stampede itself is that we know about uh, the rodeo riders and so forth, but this is truly a family event that uh, tries to help bring about that next generation of cowboys. Uh, tell us about some of the things that are available at the Stampede for kids. Well, first of all, we like all of our little cowpokes to wear cowboy hats, and there's lots of cowboy hats available for everybody. It is a family thing. Uh, it starts with the parade. We have a long tradition where families will go and line up uh, for their favorite spot on the parade route several hours before the parade. Uh, it starts with the parade, and then the little cowpokes come down to the park, and uh, they go for the rides. We have a kids' midway, of course. We have all kinds of family shows, super dogs, of course. Everybody has super dogs, but they're a big fan favorite. Um, agriculture is probably the very best place for families to connect. You can see grandpa taking the grandchildren down. You can see little kids playing with the ducks. You can see um, the kids putting their hands in a pail of canola grain, which is 
just a lovely experience to see the kids and they plunge, push their hands into that pail of grain and you see a big smile on their face. It's a terrific, uh, it's a terrific way for families to come and learn about life and that's what our agriculture exhibits are all about. Now, one of the things about uh, the Stampede is that it, too, has grown up with Calgary as it has emerged as a major business center bustling with, with skyscrapers and a, a booming energy sector. Tell us how the Stampede has changed and evolved over time as uh, Calgary has, has become a much bigger and more important place. Well, five years ago, uh, the Stampede recognized that uh, it was the gathering place for um, Calgary. It's actually a phrase coined by a well-known businessman in Calgary called, uh, his name is Murray Edwards, and he suggested that the Stampede really was a gathering place uh, for Calgary. And uh, we developed a master plan that was a, um, an expansion of the park uh, and about a billion dollars worth of infrastructure that we hope to complete over 20 years, and we're about a quarter of the way through that now. Um, we've expanded our trade and convention facilities. Uh, our next project is to improve the riverbank for Calgarians and uh, then to um, add in a youth campus and to improve our ag facilities. So we're about a quarter of the way there. We expect we'll be another quarter of the way there in five years, and uh, we'll continue to make it be the gathering place for uh, Calgarians and Albertans. Now, one of the things about uh, about the uh uh, stampede itself is that this really is one of the things that truly brands Calgary as a, a western city, a city that's that's tied to western culture. During the course of the 10-day festival, how many people come and where do they come from? We get people from all over uh, the world. We have uh, particularly good take up from uh, Europe, uh, of course, the uh, United States, and uh, of course, there's a certain regional a aspect as well. So, y you know, our uh, our show is about Western heritage and values, and we're uh, we've got a terrific brand. I think what people come to see is to experience all of those things that uh, that we do. Can you talk a little bit about that Western heritage and, and just the culture of cowboys? I mean, cowboys have their own unique culture that that's even that's very different uh, from any other culture in North America I think well, now that's a really interesting uh, question as as I was at one meeting there was a young gal there and she made the comment nobody wants to marry an accountant they all want to marry a cowboy <laughs> and that mythology and that uh, romance of the West is um, a big piece of what we uh, demonstrate at its best our uh, Western values uh, center around uh, pride of place, commitment to community, reaching out, uh, neighbors helping neighbors, cowboying up. And uh, we have a, our PR words are different than those, but really it all comes down to cowboying up and doing what needs to be done and the same values that are the best in all of our different cultures. Vern, I want to get back to uh, the contest itself and just talk about some of the logistics. How are contestants selected to compete in, in Stampede, and are there age limitations uh, for all events or most events? Our rodeo is an invitational rodeo, so we essentially select the very best cowboys in the world. And how do you determine that from uh, just the amount of contests that they've won throughout the year? Yes, the, the cowboys, of course, are ranked based on uh, prize money. And uh, so we select the very best cowboys based on how they're ranked uh, throughout. Fern, as we uh, head into uh, the middle part of 2010, uh, this uh, uh, stampede kind of marks the uh, midway point of the year, and it's a uh, it's a good time for people who perhaps haven't made plans to put Calgary on their map, perhaps for the spring and summer for this activity. With that in mind, are there any special things planned for? for 2010 as we uh, look forward to this year's Stampede? Well, each year is um, is different. The core product does not change. It's all about uh, the romance of Western Canada, and uh, that in itself is terrific. Then, of course, there are all the uh, surrounding attractions. There's Spruce Meadows. There's the mountains. There's the Columbia Ice Fields. There's the Banff Gondola. There's just an awful lot of things to enable people to put together a good 
10-day or two-week package or even a five-day package. Stampede's a good three days. Um, you can do. You can certainly spend a lot more, but it takes a good two or three days to see the stampede, and then you can really build a holiday around it. So um, I think it's a fabulous thing to do in 2010. And for those who want to make plans, is there a website where people can go to get more information on the stampede? www.stampede.com Vern Kimball, the CEO of the Calgary Stampede, we thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Ian. Thank you very much. When we come back, Super Chef and Canadian Food Network star Ned Bell, a man who has been reshaping cuisine all across Canada, shares his recipes for success inside and outside the kitchen. As a traveling on radio show, soon to be known as World Footprints Radio, continues after this. Hi, my name is Anna. I'm from Romania, and I'm in Vancouver for the Winter Olympics. Travel on radio show is my favorite. Be sure to put Friday, April 9th through Sunday, April 11th on your calendars and join World Footprints Radio in New Orleans for the 27th Annual French Quarter Festival. This award-winning three-day event showcases the city's best live local music, cuisine, and culture, and admission is free. Enjoy nearly 170 musical performances throughout the French Quarter and more than 105 food and beverage booths from some of the city's culinary elites, making up the world's largest jazz brunch. For more information on the largest free music festival in the South, visit fqfi.org or foreverneworleans.com. Traveling On is moving on to a new name. Soon, we'll begin broadcasting as World Footprints Radio, a name that better reflects our celebration of responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Our shows will continue fostering global citizenship and a greater social consciousness by promoting values like travel philanthropy, volunteerism, and sustainability. Join us on this journey to leave positive footprints and build lasting legacies one step at a time. Would it be crazy if you packed your bags and left for a week, a month, a year? What if you left for two years? What if you were going far away to help in a village on the edge of the Gobi Desert? To spend time with people the rest of the world only reads about? To teach children and learn a thing or two about yourself? Would that be crazy? Peace Corps. Life is calling. How far will you go? To find out more, call 1-800-424-8580 or visit peacecorps.gov. Now, more of the Traveling On Radio Show. Hi, my name is Jennifer Jones. I'm from the UK, um, and I'm in Vancouver for the 2010 Winter Olympic Games. I love the Traveling On Radio Show, and I listen to it online. And welcome back. Ian and I are continuing on our journey north on uh, the Whistler Express, operated by Rocky Mountaineer and Alberta Travel Alberta uh, concurrently. And uh, we are now joined by... Chef extraordinaire, Ned Bell, and Ned is uh, well known for his show on the Food Network, Canadian Food Network, called Cook Like a Chef, and also It's Just Food on the Viva Network channel, and uh, Ned is also treating us to some wonderful meals uh, along the uh, the train trip, and um, meals that are actually uh, reflective of Alberta, Canada. Uh, Ned, welcome. Welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, spectacular day. Day, pretty classic West Coast day, a little bit rainy, but we've had uh, the experience of the Rocky Mountaineer and Travel Alberta partnering, so it's pretty uh, pretty unique to uh, to be here today. Well, we're we're very happy to have you. Now, um, as I mentioned, you're getting ready to treat us to a lot of wonderful things today, and they're all reflective of um, Alberta's culinary culture. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, you know, Alberta traditionally, obviously being the you know the wild west, so to speak, you know, uh, is known as a meat and potatoes type of province. But you know, we're definitely so much more diverse than that throughout uh, throughout the seasons. You know, uh, the four seasons of our year annually, and of course, uh, the regions from from southern Alberta through into northern Alberta. The products that we get are uh, are that we can get our hands on are unbelievable. Our our farmers and ranchers and purveyors and growers are, you know in my opinion second to none and so not only do we have great uh, great beef and cattle but we have uh, spectacular game meats uh, where we actually have the second largest bison ranch uh, in North America behind Ted Turner's ranch actually and so bison is the healthiest red meat that you can eat less fat per 100 grams than boneless skinless chicken breast believe it or not uh, so an unbelievably healthy source of uh, 
of iron and, and as I said, a really healthy red meat. And of course, it's uh, naturally raised. Uh, it's not, you know, you can't really, you can't really harness an 1,100-pound animal, so they're pretty spectacular. But you know, our province is also well known for for mustards. Uh, mustard seed is a huge crop of ours, and uh, potatoes are a huge crop of ours, of course. And and then depending on the season, we get uh, some of the best produce in Western Canada. So we're pretty darn lucky. I find it one of the most exciting places to cook in North America. So I'm lucky to be a chef there. Ned, what led you into the world of cooking and cuisine and onto television? How did that transition begin for you? Well, you know, I could give you the honest answer was that, is that my mother isn't a very good cook. So <laughs> I started cooking to uh, for my younger brother and sister because I uh, I love good food. Food is uh, food is all about love and uh, and passion and pa- you know I certainly uh, I certainly love to eat well. So I figured I better learn how to do it. Um, you know, I had started my career in Western Canada. I then spent five years in Toronto, uh, and Toronto is the uh, center of our media universe in Canada. And so, I was getting some print exposure there, and newspapers, and magazines, and such. And when Food Network uh, launched in Canada, originally started in Food Network USA, of course, out of New York, and then uh, when when Alliance Atlantis decided to bring it to Canada, um, I was basically in the right place at the right time. I was the uh, Back in 1999, the first annual Canadian Cuisine Week was held in New York, Manhattan, and I was the chef invited to go down and, and showcase our uh, our culinary wares, so to speak, uh, at a week-long festival. And um, at the time, the GM of the event, sorry, the uh, the MC of the event was uh, was a television producer, and I literally walked up to him, and you know, you don't get anything in life without asking. And I said, uh, Hey, I want to be on TV, and he said, uh, Okay. Well, let's shoot a pilot. It literally happened. Like, okay, let's shoot a pilot. So we went back to Toronto, shot a pilot a couple months later, and uh, and Food Network, uh, Food Network didn't like the pilot, but they liked me. We actually basically copied a show called Door Knock Dinners that was on Food Network USA, and uh, we called it Gorilla Cooks. Anyway, um, we we then shot uh, Cook Like a Chef, and uh, we ended up shooting over a hundred episodes. So it's a pretty popular show here in Canada, and. Uh, you know, still in reruns, uh, and then my new show, It's Just Food, we're in our third season, so we film that in Calgary with uh, Corkscrew Media, which is my production partner there, and, you know, TV is not, I didn't get into, to be, I didn't become a chef because I wanted to be on television, because there was no Food Network when I started cooking. Um, I got into cooking because I love to cook, and I love to eat great food, and, and the, uh, the exposure now that television gives us, uh, you know, just grows our, our you know, radio program or, you know, our print media and certainly allows us to brand our products and, and uh, get people in the door. It's, we're in the restaurant business to, uh, to make our people happy and make some money. So TV is an, ex- an extension of that. Now, Ned, I understand that, you know, although you're, you're in Alberta, Canada, and you're cooking a lot of food that is uh, um, regional fare, is there a particular culinary style that you personally, as Chef Ned, um, enjoy? Is there, is there a, a, a type of food that you most enjoy uh, to eat but also cook? Well, you know, I mean, I was originally trained as a pastry chef, um, and so I absolutely love desserts. Um, but in style of cuisine, uh, being a, being from the West, um, you know, uh, in Alberta, of course, it's big, bold, rustic flavors. Uh, you know, on the West Coast, of course, it's uh, it's a little bit lighter, sort of seafood and and uh, and shellfish based. But I like to call my cuisine globally inspired and locally created. So, um, you know, wherever I I, uh, wherever I find myself, whether I'm in San Francisco or Calgary or Edmonton or Vancouver or Toronto or, or uh, you know, maybe one day back in Washington, uh, you know, I will cook from the seasons and the region and uh, and then bring my own twist into it, which is from my travels around the world and certainly around North America. Oh, that's wonderful. And in fact, m- mentioning uh, Washington, D.C., you used to own a restaurant there, correct? Well, I, I was the corporate chef for a group uh, that we had to a restaurant in Vancouver, Toronto, and an outlet in Washington, uh, and the restaurant was called Senses, spelled S-E-N-S-E-S, but the the second S was a five for the five senses, so um, 
we no longer have the restaurant there, but uh, but we enjoyed our time in Washington D.C. for sure. Speaking of restaurants, uh, a restaurant uh, takes you into the realm of uh, food as business, but for you, it's a passion. You spoke about it in terms of the love and helping your family, and so it's so it's got to be something more than just having a restaurant, having your name out here on uh, shows and being able to travel. It is who you are, and it tells us a lot about you in terms of what matters to you. Talk to us about just your passion for what you're doing and if you could ever project yourself doing something else. Well, you know, my grandfather was a was a doctor, a physician, and my parents are both in real estate. And of course, so as a young man, I was clearly pushed to go into uh, into the medical world or into into the real estate world. And I basically rebelled to say that I want to do my own thing and I want to forge my own path. And I fell in love with with this business uh, at a very young age. I started when I was 14, and I saw f- almost immediately the connection between people, food and uh, you know passion and love and I continue to to this day in fact uh, we're out here uh, uh, for the Olympics and staying with my my in-laws and for the last five nights in a row I've done family dinner every night and uh, not once in in the history of of my life with my in-laws have I ever cooked five straight meals and uh, my wife you know finally said to me last night she's like okay tomorrow night no more family meal we've already had five great family meals and so for me yes this is my my career but more importantly this is how i connect with my friends with my family and uh you know my wife likes to say that uh that I could walk into a room of 50 strangers and have 50 friends almost immediately so now, Ned, you um, you touched on uh, something that Ian and I are very passionate about a little bit earlier as we focus on, you know, responsible tourism and culture and heritage and sustainability, and you're a very big proponent of using sustainable foods, and I think you've been involved with a couple of uh, programs that uh, that address uh, those missions, such as Feast of Fields. Can you tell us a little bit about your efforts and, and uh, your involvement? Absolutely. Well, you know, Farm Folk City Folk, which is an organization that basically is just that, bringing farm folk and city folk together, has an annual event across Canada. Uh, Calgary has an event. Vancouver has an event. Toronto has an event. And it's called Feast of Fields. And basically it brings together uh, dozens of chefs, uh, local organic breweries, local wineries if they have some, uh, of course, ranchers, purveyors, artisans. And we use each other's products and we uh, and we showcase dishes and we sell tickets to uh, to the general public and they come and basically ho- we host this this big party in the middle of a field uh, middle of a farm we choose our farms spe- you know especially dependent on you know being regional and local and it's basically just a fun party, almost like a huge farmer's market. And uh, another thing that, that is very popular in the West is a program called Ocean Wise, which is all about sustainable seafood. Uh, started actually originally uh, by the Monterey Aquarium down in California and adopted by the Vancouver Aquarium. Uh, and it was it's called Sea Choice in, in, uh, in the States, but up here in Canada it's called Ocean Wise. And it's basically a symbol that... Uh, that you know, promotes sustainability uh, of our of our culture, of our oceans uh, for tomorrow. We call it oceans for tomorrow. And of course, you know, without our oceans and without uh, without the sustenance that comes from our oceans, we as a culture will not survive. And so, as a chef, I feel a a responsibility to make sure that on my menus I have my ocean wise symbol beside. I was actually the first restaurant to be uh, 100% ocean wise in Alberta, uh, which I'm very proud of. And and certainly uh, I feel as though it it gives my my customers uh, education, which then when they go to their supermarkets, they can ask about you know, hey, tell me what seafood you have that's sustainable. Tell me what you know what produce is in season. Tell me what uh, what local artisan made this bread. And you know, all you got to do is search it out, and it's there. It's right under your nose. You just uh, you know, we're so busy in our culture and our lives these days with our families and with our uh, with our careers that you know we often go for the quick fix uh you know but every every town has a farmer's market 
you know, every town has a regional fair, cuisine, culture, um, you know, and, and all you got to do is be interested enough to try and search it out and you will find it. You know, just out of curiosity, um, what is your feeling uh, about, say, farm-raised fish like salmon versus wild caught? There's there's a controversy with regards to farm-raised fish. Can you share a little bit of your feelings and your opinions about that? Well, I'm glad you asked me that question because, you know, farm-raised has been this awful word for so long. And you can actually have sustainable fish farms. Uh, landlocked fish farms can be sustainable. Uh, and there are more and more of these popping up uh, across Western Canada where, you know, you can have, uh, you know, smoked or Alaskan black cod, which we call sable fish. Uh, you know, of course, we had a controversy this this year with with our salmon stocks in in Western Canada being uh, being jeopardized and so we we really uh, held back on how much we were allowed to catch and you know farmed fish uh, I would say if I was to broad stroke it I would I would direct people away from it but I think in the next 15 to 25 years we're gonna have to uh, embrace certain farm-raised fish uh, because you know eventually if we don't take care of our oceans, which again speaks to ocean-wise, uh, we're not going to have the habitats to uh, to have farm fish pens uh, off our coastal waters. Uh, and so, you know, I of course prefer. Um, you know, long line, single line uh, fishing, where you know you're not uh, you're not sending out these you know 20 mile lines of uh, of uh, uh, you know trying to catch everything under the sun when you're really only looking for one species. Um, you know, if we were to do it on land, it would just be you know it wouldn't be allowed. But because it happens under the under the surface of our oceans, we seem to get away with it, which is which is you know a huge problem for me. But you know, I do feel as though farming, uh, in some capacity, if it's sustainable, uh, is is got to be part of our future. And and you know, along those lines, I know there are areas, uh, for for example, off of uh, the coast of South America and Chile, where there's um, because of perhaps over farming or or environmental uh, pollutants, um, fish are dying. Um, are, have you and any of your other projects like Sustainability in the Kitchen or Canadian Chefs Congress have, have you um, been involved with efforts to uh, protect our waters? To, to save our, you know, our our our, our fish and and, and uh, shellfish. Well, certainly through Feast of Fields and Farm Folk, City Folk, Ocean Wise, uh, and the Canadian Chefs Congress, all of our efforts are are uh, charitable work where we raise money through our events to give back to uh, to local. Um, sustainable people you know sustainable uh, advocates who 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 work towards those goals so as a chef we're doing as a group of chefs we're doing our part um, you know the issue with farm fish is that of course they overfeed them and so what happens is the feed falls to the bottom of the ocean and basically uh, destroys the habitat and then of course also things like sea lice which basically float freely because fish pens are not closed they're open and so those you know sea lice and other terrible things get you know through the currents get flushed back into uh, uh inf affecting the the wild uh fisheries that are you know the wild fish that are swimming through the same waters and so i i know uh f for a fact in alberta we have a number of landlocked landlocked fish farms that are trying hard to uh to to put sustainability on the menu of restaurants throughout southern and northern alberta and you know hopefully we can continue to support those you know sustainable uh, landlocked fish farms through these fundraising effort efforts to allow these these guys to push forward because often they're just you know one person one family that are that are trying to make a difference and it starts with one so well, Ned Bell, star of uh, Food Network's uh, Cook Like a Chef, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And if you ever come up to Alberta, come and enjoy our great uh, big sky country and our fabulous cuisine. We're there. <laughs> thank you for joining us again today. It's been a pleasure to share some travel time with you today, as it is every week. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again next week. Same time, same frequency. And until then, leave positive footprints and build a meaningful legacy one step at a time.
Would it be crazy if you packed your bags and left for a week, a month, a year? What if you left for two years? What if you were going far away to help in a village on the edge of the Gobi Desert? To spend time with people the rest of the world only reads about? To teach children and learn a thing or two about yourself? Would that be crazy? Peace Corps. Life is calling. How far will you go? To find out more, call 1-800-424-8580 or visit peacecorps.gov.